Well, as we go out this year, I want to talk to you about prayer. And I want us to look at the prayer Jesus taught his disciples recorded in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 13. 9 through 13. What did I say? 19 through 13. That would be kind of backwards, wouldn't it? 9 through 13. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. You know, God doesn't require a lot. I'm reminded of Matthew 18, 20, where Jesus says, where two or more gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And we just read the little story to the kids that God took a choir and used those men singing songs to God to rout an entire army made up of three nations. So we should never feel overwhelmed. We should never feel overpowered. As Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? And as Jesus is with his disciples, and he's giving what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, And in the midst of this, he teaches his disciples how to pray. And he says in verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's all pray that together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, Father, we ask that you would reveal reveal yourself to us today as we look into your word. Reveal the power that you have given to us the power that we have at our disposal through prayer. Lord, reveal to us the promises that you have made to us and the glory that you have opened to us in your name. Father, we ask this, that you would be glorified in your church, in your people, in Jesus' name, amen. So when Jesus is teaching his disciples, sometimes this is referred to as the Lord's Prayer. It's commonly what we call it, the Lord's Prayer. And it's, it's absolutely appropriate to pray this prayer. But Jesus, in teaching his disciples how to pray, Jesus is giving 
to his disciples really a pattern for us to use when we pray. He did not command us to pray only these exact words. He didn't say, when you pray, pray only this. He didn't say this was what we must pray when we pray. He said, in this manner, or in this form, or in this pattern, pray. So it's with these elements, it's in this format, with this pattern, we are to offer our prayers to God. So let's go through this prayer, this prayer that Jesus prayed. And incidentally, this prayer would not be totally unfamiliar. So the elements of this prayer were not totally unfamiliar to Jesus and his disciples. Many of the elements of this prayer were very common elements of prayer that the Jews prayed. But it's also interesting that Jesus didn't use exactly those elements. So let's begin with our Father in heaven. So Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this manner, our Father in heaven. So Jesus directs this prayer to who? To our Father. He didn't say to my Father, though it was his Father. He didn't say to a Father. He said to our Father. So Jesus is being inclusive when he is teaching his disciples to pray. And he says to his disciples, when you pray, pray to your Father in heaven. Now last week we talked about Jesus, or in Christ, we become heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We are heirs, we are children of God. And how did we become children? Well, we became children because God poured His Spirit into our hearts, making us His children. And that Spirit of God in us, remember Paul writes, cries out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is a word often translated Daddy, but it's really Father, Papa. It is, it speaks of the fatherhood of God. It is a term of affection, but it's also a term that speaks of the reverence of God and the position of God as our Father. It carries all of these elements of God as someone that we can absolutely approach and come into His presence and expect to experience His love and His embrace as a Father who loves His children, but it also communicates this truth that he is the father, he is the patriarch, he is the head, he is the authority, he is the father in heaven, he is the father of our Lord Jesus, he is the father of all creation, he is our father because he has adopted us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this prayer, in this prayer, Jesus is directing us that the object of our prayer is our Father. Our Father in heaven speaks of His exalted position. 
Not that he's far from us. He's in heaven and we're here because that's not what this is communicating because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's not God far removed from us. He is God with us. He is the God, the Father in heaven, but he is God who dwells in us and among us. And how does he do that? He dwells in us by his spirit that he has poured into our hearts by grace through faith. But our Father in heaven speaks of his exalted position. We have a Father in heaven, a Father to all men by creation, a Father to all saints, to all of his children by adoption. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Your spirit should bear witness that you are children of God. The witness inside your heart It doesn't always make sense up here. But what is in your heart? Electricity. I've said this so many times. Electricity doesn't make sense to me. I know it's very logical to some people, but it just kind of scares me. But but I sure like it. I like flipping the switch and the light's coming on. So I take advantage of it. I live with the benefit of it. I'm thankful for it, even though I don't fully understand it. I know it's for my good. I know it's for my benefit. I experience the benefit of it all the time. Well, that's the way God is. God is beyond our comprehension. God is beyond our understanding. But do you know that God dwells in you? Do you know that the Spirit of God is in you? Do you know by your spirit that you are his child? That's what Paul writes. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that spirit in you is crying out, Abba, Father, our Father in heaven. God has given you the grace. He's given you the privilege to cry out to him, to call upon him as your Father in heaven. Anytime, any place, in any way, Our Father in heaven delights in communing with his children. He loves to communicate with you. And this prayer is not a formula for you to pray. It is a pattern. And the first thing that we are taught by Jesus in this pattern of prayer is that we have a Father in heaven that welcomes our communication, that desires our communication and our communion. And he has ears to hear our prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed reminds me of Jennifer Bennett. When she was a little girl, she would say, Our Father in heaven, Howard be your name. (laughs) His name is not Howard. Hallowed is his name. That word hallowed means sanctified. To sanctify is to set apart. 
His name is set apart. It's separate. It's other than any other name. It speaks of the holiness of God, the purity of God. His name is sanctified. It's pure. It's other than. It's separate from any other. It is holy because he is holy. Therefore, his name is holy. This reminds us of the nature and the character of the one that we are directing our prayer to. But it also reminds us of who our Father is and who we are as His children. This is what Peter writes. Be holy as God is holy. He quotes that from the Old Testament Scriptures. There is this command that we are to be holy as God is holy. That we are to be holy because our God is holy. Now if we really begin to think about the holiness of God and the command that we are to be holy as God is holy, we're going to become really frustrated very quickly because there is no way humanly possible for us to become holy as God is holy. There is no way humanly possible for us to live our lives in a way that we measure up to the perfect holiness of God. But there is a way by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we can know that God has imparted his holiness to us, that he has imputed his righteousness to us. And by imparting and imputing his righteousness and his holiness to us, guess what he has done? He has made us holy. Do you remember the story in the Bible when Jesus is walking and there is this throng, this multitude of people pressing all around him? And the Bible says in the midst of this throng of people, in the midst of this multitude, there is a woman who has had an issue of blood for 18 years. And the Bible records for us that Jesus, as he is pressing through this crowd, and there are people pressing against him, this woman presses through the crowd, makes it up to Jesus, and she touches, the Bible says, the hem of his garment. The hem of his garment. Now some would say, as a rabbi, Jesus had his prayer shawl on, and he had the little teetses, the little uh, tied tassels, all around the edge of his prayer shawl and it's that's what she touched that she touched the little tassels of Jesus shawl and when she touched those Jesus stopped and he said who has touched me I feel virtue depart from me and his disciples basically said Jesus are you crazy there are people pressing all around you and you say who has touched me and Jesus said no someone has touched me in faith and virtue power has flowed out of me and in that moment when that woman with the issue of blood touched Jesus the Bible says that what doctors could not do in 18 years Jesus did in a moment in that moment she was healed Now, what's significant about this story is there's all kinds of things about this story that we might not understand, but but was understood by the writers of Scripture. Number one, this woman with an issue of blood was unclean. And she was not. It was against the law for her to even be amongst people having an issue of blood. She was breaking God's law by even being out there in that crowd. And when she touched Jesus, she really broke the law and broke the commandments. 
because this unclean woman actually touched this rabbi, but not just this rabbi, but she touched the Son of God. Now, under the law of Moses, the law would say that if that woman sat in her bedchamber on her bed, her bed would be unclean. The law would say that if her husband touched her, her husband would become unclean as she was unclean. In other words, under the law and under normal circumstances, when something unclean touched something clean, the unclean defiled the clean. But what we see with Jesus is just the exact opposite. When the unclean woman with the issue of blood touched Jesus, Jesus did not become unclean. In fact, the exact opposite happened. The woman with the issue of blood touched Jesus, and in that instant, she became clean. She became healed. So when the unclean came in contact with the clean, or we could say it like this, when the unholy came in contact with the holy, the unholy was made holy. And that's exactly what happens to us. We are unholy. But we, when we come in contact with Jesus, the Holy One, we are not making Him unholy. He makes us holy. When Jesus touches us, we become as he is. When Jesus touches us, we become holy as he is holy. We become righteous as he is righteous. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Sanctified and holy is your name. God has given to you in Jesus Christ his name, and in giving you his name, he calls you holy. So this prayer not only reminds us of who God is, it reminds us what has happened to us once we have been touched by Jesus. That now, when the holy touches the unholy, it is the unholy that becomes holy. It reminds us who we are now as children of God. As He is, so are we to be sanctified by His name. We are to be separate from this world. Though we live in the world, we are not of the world. We are no longer of it, but we are of Christ. We were once born of the flesh, but now we have been born again of the Spirit. We are in Christ, set apart for His purpose and for His glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom Come, your kingdom, that word kingdom, what is a kingdom? It speaks of his rule, his dominion, his authority. Your kingdom come, your rule come, your dominion come, your authority come, your kingdom come. This should always be part of our prayer. We should pray constantly that his kingdom would come. And we don't judge the coming of his kingdom by what we can see with our natural eyes. If we would have done that, we would never have believed that he came the first time, and many did not. 
many just saw a common baby. Think about the, the day Joseph and Mary carried the baby Jesus into the temple to be dedicated. Think of how many people walked by Jesus and saw only a baby. They did not see the Son of God. They did not see the King of glory. They did not see the child upon whose shoulders rested the government. They did not see the increase of God's kingdom and peace coming into that temple. They did not see the glory of God suddenly enter the temple, although those were all prophecies in the Old Testament. Those were all foretold things that would happen. It was all foretold that God would walk into his temple suddenly, that he would come, that his glory would enter suddenly. Right there in Malachi 3, but so many people that day didn't recognize it. But Simeon and Anna did. And the Bible tells us something about Simeon and Anna. It tells us that they spent their days praying. Now, I'm not saying you've got to spend your days praying and doing nothing else. But the Bible does say pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean you quit your job and you quit your responsibilities and you just lay around and pray all day. That means that as you do what you do, as you do your work, as you do your job, as you fulfill your daily responsibilities, that you do so with an attitude of prayer. That your heart and your mind in default mode go back to being mindful of God, of our Father in heaven, whose name is hallowed and holy and sanctified and set apart. And so are we. And that our prayer is for His kingdom to come. It was common for the Jews in that day to pray, the kingdom of your Messiah come. They would pray to God this prayer, these words, these very words. God, the kingdom of your Messiah come. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. Not the kingdom of your Messiah, but God Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Jesus changes that common form of prayer, signifying that the Messiah has already come, that it is the kingdom of the Father in the power of his grace upon the souls of men that the kingdom is coming. I believe it's in, let me see if I can find it, in Luke, I believe Luke chapter 17. Sorry, computer person, I didn't put this on there. But let's turn over. Let me, let me read this to you. Luke 17, verse 20. Speaking of the kingdom coming. Luke 17, 20. Now, when, the, when he was asked, this is talking about the Pharisees asking Jesus. When he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus said the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. 
It's not something you're going to see coming outwardly. It's not something you're going to see happening and you're going to be able to point to it and say, see here, here's the kingdom. But it's something that happens without observation. It is something that's happening within you. I always think about this on the National Day of Prayer. We always do the National Day of Prayer. And I can remember we had the, the three ladies. Cindy Whaling was, was her part and her passion to pray. We pray for the nation. Pray for America. We'd say, pray for America. Now, don't pray for America. What's America? What is America? Are you praying for a geographic border? Are you praying for the land between the Canadian border and the Mexican border? When we pray for America, what are we praying for? We're praying for people. Don't, don't ask God to change America. We need to understand. What are we asking? When we pray... The Bible says, God said to Solomon, when my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. When my people. See, prayer is, the object of prayer is not some concept. It's not just a nation. It's not geographic boundaries. It's people. What makes up a nation? People make up a nation. What has made America what it is? People have made America what it is. What's made America good? Are great. You know, that's the slogan we like today. Make America great again. Okay, well, what does that mean? How is America going to become great again? How is America going to change? America is not going to change until the hearts of people change. We don't pray for some concept. We don't pray for some theoretical political entity or geographic entity, we pray that God would change the hearts of people. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, this is what Jesus said. The Pharisees said, well, how are we going to know when the kingdom comes? Is it going to be when you send an army into Jerusalem and overthrow the Romans? Are we going to see some great army coming from the sea? Or is it going to come from the south? Is it going to come from the north? Is it going to come from the east? Where, where's it going to come from, Jesus? You're supposed to be the Messiah. Tell us when the kingdom's coming. And Jesus said the kingdom doesn't come with observation. You're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking for an army and a guy on a white horse that's going to ride in and overthrow everybody. That's not how the kingdom comes. Jesus said the kingdom doesn't come with observation. It comes within us. We say, pray for America. As we leave 2017 and go into 2018, you're going to see this. You're going to read this. All the churchy blogs, all the things. It's, it's going to all be about praying for America and pray for our nation. Well, that's great and that's good, but please understand what that really means. It means that God has to change hearts. And guess what? We should not ask God to change the hearts of America until we know that God has to change our own heart. Revival will never come to our nation until revival comes to our own heart. Otherwise, what benefit is it to us? Your kingdom 
come. When the kingdom begins to manifest, when the kingdom begins to overtake our heart, it will begin to change us outwardly. That's why when we talk about conversion, Jesus didn't say go out and make converts. He said go out and make disciples. Discipleship is more than conversion. Discipleship is more than just getting someone to, to say a prayer and confess something. Conversion actually means something has changed. Something has taken place. The Bible describes it this way, that we become new creations. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that God would change our hearts. But not just our hearts, that God would change the hearts of men and women and children all around us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of the Passover, just hours before he's taken and arrested and, and ultimately crucified. He's in the garden and he prays. Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the Bible records that Jesus prayed that prayer three times. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of my Father. Jesus said, Jesus teaches us, pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Prayer should never be seen as a means to change the will of God. Prayer is to change our will. Prayer causes our will to conform to the will of the Father. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes us. Through prayer, we seek His will, and we seek His will to be done, not only generally, but we seek it to be done specifically and personally in our own lives. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not praying for pie in the sky. We're not praying for something to happen someday, somewhere. We're not praying, God, just get me through this earthly realm until I can get to the, to the heavenly realm. No, he says, pray your will be done on earth. That means that we are praying for the here and now. We are praying for the will of the Father to be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Our prayer is that the will of God be done on earth as freely and as effortlessly as it is in heaven. In other words, our prayer is that heaven would permeate earth and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that happens as his will is freely done in us. So as we pray for others to come in line with the will of God, don't forget to pray that you come in line with the will of God.
as we see our brother or our sister in need to come in line with the will of God, let's be sure to examine ourselves and look in our own hearts and make sure that our heart and our desire is to be in line with the will of God. Pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We won't, be, we won't be without things to pray for if we just consider our own lives in relation to what they would be like in heaven. Here's what they are on earth. Here's what they should be. Here's God in heaven. Here's Jesus Christ. Here I am. That right there gives us lots to pray for. For ourselves and for everyone around us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Our prayer is for this day. Our prayer is for daily provision. What God provides, what we need, what we are to have faith for is this day. So prayer... That makes prayer what? That makes prayer daily. I mean, that makes prayer constant. Because we are in constant need of God's provision. You and I are in constant need of something that only God can give us. So we are never without the need for prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. The example of the children of Israel in the wilderness and the provision of manna. Remember when God sends the manna and he says, I'm going to send it and you go out and you gather it every day. But it's only good for the day. If you go out on Monday and you gather enough manna for Monday and you want to be lazy and say, well, I'll just get some extra and just keep it until Tuesday, it ain't going to work. And, and of course, they didn't believe God because we as humans are so guilty of that. And true to God's word, because God is always true to his word, those that went out and tried to gather extra manna so they could be lazy on Tuesday and Wednesday, what did they find out? That it rotted and had worms in it, and they were unable to eat it. And so God made sure that they had to go out every day, and they could only get, they were only provided their provision for that day. And then when the next day would come, it would be there and they would go out and get it for that day. It was enough for that day. And then the next day, it would be provided and they would go out and get it. And this is how they lived all of those years in the wilderness. Every day, God would provide their daily provision. But every day, they had to go out and get new provision, except on the the Sabbath, on the eve of the Sabbath, God made sure that they had enough so that on the Sabbath they did not have to go out and work. Supernaturally, the manna would last for the Sabbath, but it wouldn't last for any other day. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not that we should not plan for tomorrow. It's that we should not worry about tomorrow. Do you see the difference? 
When Martin Luther was asked, what would you do if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow? His answer was, I would plant a tree. Now, if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, why plant a tree? Because Martin Luther knew that we would reign on this earth with the Lord Jesus as kings and priests. He wasn't short-sighted. He was biblically sighted. It's not that we're not to plan for tomorrow. We are commanded to not worry about tomorrow. God teaches us to pray and to believe him for daily provision. In this chapter, just a few verses down from this, Jesus continues this theme in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the nations seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have well, I'm sorry, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. God's promise and God's provision is daily. And forgive us our debts, or forgive us our trespasses. We need forgiveness. We are indebted to God because of our sin. The penalty of sin was due, and we did not, and we do not possess the resource to pay that penalty. Thus we cry out to the Father for mercy. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins. And the Father responds with the gift of His Son to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus came to settle the debt we owed, but we could not pay. We are forgiven by grace, not because we deserve it, not even because we desired it, because we did not deserve it, nor did we desire it. In fact, Romans 5.10 makes it very clear that Christ died for us and reconciled us to the Father while we were his enemies. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We need to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are forgiven by grace. Therefore, we have no right to withhold grace and forgiveness from those who have wronged us and sinned against us. In fact, Jesus warns us in these very verses immediately following this prayer that we must forgive in order to be forgiven. Look at verse 14 and 15. Immediately following the prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples Jesus says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
We have the parable of the servant who goes in with the great debt and he goes before the judge and he pleads for mercy and the judge forgives him this great debt. And he leaves the courtroom and he's going out and he encounters a, a, a fellow servant who owes him a little bit. And he says, hey, buddy, how about that money you owe me? And the fellow servant says, oh, I'm so sorry. Please have mercy on me. I, I can't pay you. No, no mercy. I'm going to have you thrown in the poorhouse. And he has this servant who owes him a little bit thrown in a poorhouse. He did this out in public and someone went back to the judge and said, hey, you know that guy you just forgave this great debt to? He just had his fellow servant thrown in the poorhouse because this guy owed him a little bit and he wouldn't forgive it. And he says, call him back. And the judge calls him back and he says, I extended forgiveness to you. You would not extend it to someone else. I withdraw that. I cast you in the poorhouse to the torturers and you will remain there until everything is paid. Jesus gives that parable because it gives us a picture of what forgiveness truly is. Forgiveness is truly the grace of God. You are forgiven by God's grace. You are not forgiven because you deserved it. You're not forgiven because you even wanted it. You're forgiven because God chose to forgive you. We didn't deserve it. We didn't desire it, but God gave it to us. And once we have received the forgiveness of God, we cannot, we are commanded not to withhold forgiveness from those around us. Forgiveness is not something we can give out of our own resource. Forgiveness is like love. It's something that God gives to us. And as we have received God's grace-filled forgiveness, we are to extend that forgiveness to others and freely give it to them just as freely as God gave it to us in Christ. Forgiveness is not conditional. It is unconditional. That might not be easy for you. That might not be pleasant for you, but it does not matter. God didn't say do it because it's easy or do it because it's convenient or do it because it's pleasant. He said forgive as you have been forgiven. And if you cannot forgive as you have been forgiven, then you need to get on your knees and pray and ask God to give you the grace and the humility to forgive others as you have been forgiven. As you have been forgiven, you are commanded to forgive unconditionally. And do not lead us into temptation. Our prayer and our desire should always be for God to lead us away from temptation. God's promise is to lead us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Listen to the first three verses of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. The Lord is my shepherd. You are the sheep he is the shepherd. He is the one leading the sheep. And the Bible says that he leads his sheep in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
as he leads, we are to stay in his way, in his path, and not stray. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We pray for God to keep us from the evil one. To keep us from the evil one does not mean that we will never encounter evil. Do you understand? Deliver us from the evil one does not mean you will not encounter evil. It means evil cannot have you. It means the evil one cannot have you, but you may encounter him, and you may encounter his works, and you may experience the fallenness and the brokenness and the death that his work has brought. you may experience his attack. But he can never have you. He can never do with you as he wills. He can only do as the Father wills. We see this in the book of Job. Let's look at the other remaining verses of the 23rd Psalm. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Obviously, there is something, there is the opportunity to fear. Obviously, there is darkness we will walk through, but the Bible says, we shall fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now look at the next verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. God prepares a table in the presence of our enemies, but he has delivered us from the hand and the power of all our enemies, even death. Even death. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The kingdom is his, the power is his, and the glory is His. The purpose of all things, especially our prayer, is the glory of God. And when we pray, we should always pray with God's glory in mind. In fact, the very structure of this prayer, Jesus prays, begins by directing us to the glory of the Father in heaven because that is a picture of pure glory. And the prayer ends by directing us back to glory to yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So often we pray and our prayers are focused in our own needs and our own desires to the point that we forget to pray for his will to be done and for his glory to be known in all things, even in the midst of our own need, in the midst of our own suffering. We must never forget that God has tied glory and suffering together. This is most vividly and graphically portrayed in the, in, in the cross. Christ crucified is the most graphic and explicit 
portrayal of how God has tied glory and suffering together. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 2, 8 through 9, writes this, You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in that He put all things in subjection under Him, He left nothing that is not put under Him. But now we do not yet see all things put under Him, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. God's promise of glory is not made apart from our suffering. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And in Romans 8, verses 15 and 17, the verses I read to you a while ago that talked about how the Spirit of God cries out from our heart, Abba, Father, Paul writes, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. We are never instructed to pray for suffering, for we do not need to pray for suffering, in case you ever, if you haven't realized that, you don't have to ask for suffering, it just comes to you. Because suffering is a natural part of life in this world, in this fallen world. We will experience suffering, but God has tied the promise of glory to our suffering. We don't need to know that God's, we do need to know that God's promises to take our suffering and to use it for His glory. That is His promise to us. That all suffering is a result of sin that has infected all the creation at the fall. And God takes our suffering, He redeems it for His glory, and He promises that He is working good in and through all things. One day, that day is coming. We may see it in part now, we may know it in part now, but there is a day coming when we will see and we will know and we will experience the relationship of suffering and glory and all the good that God has worked together in all things. The fact that we now see only in part does not diminish the truth or the reality of Jesus crowned with glory and with honor in His death, in His suffering. And when we see by faith our suffering Savior glorified, it reminds us of the promise that our own suffering in this life will also lead to glory in Christ. Listen to Paul in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sit, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the promise of God. Pray to that end. Pray to and pray for His glory.
Let's get ready to come to the table. I want to invite you to come. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. It is the man Christ Jesus. We appreciate all the saints that have gone before us. The Bible says you are a saint not because of all the good works you've done, but because you have been redeemed in Jesus Christ. You are a saint because of the good work Jesus Christ has done. So we're not asking our favorite saint, we're not asking the uh, Virgin Mary to to pray for us on behalf uh, of, of our need because they have a closer relationship with Jesus. The Bible says we have a mediator with God, and that mediator is Jesus Christ. He is the mediator that makes a way for us to come to God. And we are invited to come to this table today in faith, not in perfection, not in flawless obedience, not because you've never failed or fallen, but we come in faith because we have failed, we have fallen, we are fallen. But in Christ, we have been redeemed and raised up. So we come because of the work he has done, because of the redemption he has redeemed us with. He is the object of our faith. The Father is the object of our prayer. And the Father invites us to come to his table because of what his son has done. So church, as you trust Jesus, come to the table. Let's all stand. I pray that as we leave this old year and go into a new year that you would do so mindful of his grace and his mercy. Mindful of the privilege that he's given to us to be his children. To come boldly before the throne of grace. To make our petitions known. Be instruments used for his glory. To make his gospel and his name known. Here is your charge as we end 2017 that you would pray and that as you enter 2018 that you would pray that we would be a people of prayer. That this new year would be filled with prayer that seeks the Father in His holiness, in His kingdom, in His will, in His provision, in His grace, in His guidance, and in his glory, that we would be a people for his glory. Amen.